0: The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcasts. I'm Nicholas Leiter,
1: senior content editor of the magazine. In this episode, Larry Guthrie, CCIM
0: Institute Director of Communications, is joined by Matt Bronfman, principal and CEO of Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company that has completed massive downtown projects, including Chelsea Market in New York, Ponce City Market in Atlanta, and San Francisco's Girardelli Square. The two discuss the secret to the
1: firm's enduring success through its 37-year history. Supporting tenants during COVID-19 and strategies for approaching the retail space from a unique perspective. Bronfman also details Jamestown's direct-to-consumer investment platform to encourage
0: participation from new sources. Hi, I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for CCIM Institute. And I'm here with Matt Bronfman, CEO of Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company. Jamestown's ongoing mission has been transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. And I think their track record speaks for itself with projects like Chelsea Market in New York City, Ponce City Market in Atlanta, Girardelli Square in San Francisco, just to name a few. Before we jump in, we do have a quick disclaimer for compliance purposes. Securities are offered through North Capital Private Securities Corporate Member FINRA SIPC. Jamestown's portfolio of projects is not representative of Jamestown Invest One's investment strategy and the scale of investments the fund intends to make. An investment in Jamestown Invest is illiquid, involves substantial risk, and there's a potential for loss or part or all of investment capital. Visit jamestowninvest.com slash OC for more information in the full offering statement. And we'll get more into that when we chat uh, with Matt. But now that we have that out of the way, thank you for joining me, Matt. Pleasure to be here, Larry. Nice to be speaking with you and to be a part of this this, this dialogue. Absolutely. I was, you know, I was uh, when I looked at the projects that you had done, I, I had to say, you know, it's it's we so often see these really high profile projects, but don't know the names of the people and the companies behind them. So I was uh, it was exciting to have a chance to talk with you about your 37 year history. You've been around for quite some time some incredible accomplishments. You mentioned that the firm braved the Great Recession relatively unscathed. What do you think was the secret behind that? Well, I'd say a few things. Number one, we were one of the largest sellers in the
1: United States, a little over $5 billion in the 18-month period leading up to the Great Recession. We just had a A company view that the markets were overvalued and were one of, if not the largest seller in America in advance of the Great Recession. But of course, um, relatively is a relative term. To be clear, we took our lumps as well um we had good we were fortunate to sell a lot but we own plenty of assets but i would say a few things about what we continued to own going into the great recession we number one we had a diversity of assets across markets across product type and that helped us a lot we also have a really strong internal value add team we have people who do leasing who are in marketing who are in development, construction. We're a real believer that there's I'm a believer that there's a difference between what I call allocators of capital in the real estate space who more sit on the sidelines and sort of cross their fingers and hope things go well, and they're operators of real estate who are who roll up their sleeves and really dig into the dirt, so to speak. And we're that ladder category we're roll up our sleeves guys we're in the real estate business we're not money managers we're not tech guys by nature we are a real we are a real real estate company and all of our internal skills our vertically integrated teams really helped us a lot in the great recession Um, and it also made us better coming out of the great recession in other words it's easy when the wind is at your back and things are going well but when you've had to basically tilt against the wind and fight against it and create your own momentum, I actually think the Great Recession made us a much, much better team today than we ever were in the past. It made us more resilient. It made us more creative and just a better operating real estate company. So it really set us up for the future very, very
0: well. There was, uh, I guess there was some... Uh great lessons from, from great tragedy, if you will. You know, it's a, uh, it was like proving ground for so many. And it sounds like you did really uh, amazingly well with the the way your business strategy was set up to begin with. Did you find that, uh, that was different in this past year or you were just set up for success because of that. And so this past year didn't necessarily, you didn't see those speed bumps. Well, I'd say a few things. I think from
1: crisis you know, it's a cliche, but from crisis can come opportunity. And the crisis of 08 um, led to opportunities for us, again, to be a better real estate opportunity and to find some great buying opportunities. This crisis also presented unique challenges. And I think having a vertically integrated, hands-on real estate team helped us a lot heading into this crisis. But of course, this was unlike anything we'd seen in the past. And, um, but I think we learned to be very creative and think outside the box. And, you know, for example, we um, ended up coming up with a $50 million fund to help our small business tenants, our local retailers, restaurants, etc. cetera, better um, help them survive um, this most recent pandemic. And so, you know, things like that, that took a lot of creativity. It took a lot of capital, but we were just committed to keep our tenants in business, keeping them going. And so, yeah, I think we learned a lot of creativity from 08, but I think every crisis, of course, is unique. And so we had to respond in new ways this time around.
0: Yeah, and I was really... Heartened to hear about the fifty million dollar fund. You know, it's it's not something that everyone did during the crisis, and certainly you're in a position to where you might be able to raise those funds more readily than another firm. But clearly, that that commitment to being that strong corporate citizen, it, it, above and beyond the fact that it's it's great business uh, as well. But you know, why is that important to you? Um, outside of the business sense? And what are the benefits that you've seen from doing an initiative like that, that other firms could scale at their level? Well, I would say a few things on our $50 million fund to help
1: keep our tenants going. It really helped a lot of them to survive. And I see our, I use the term tenants but they're really one of our partners. You know, we have investors who are partners. We have even you know, we have different people who I see as our partners. And one of our partners are our tenants. And we were just committed that we were. We were going to do what we could to help them keep going. And so we provided loans for such things as, let's say you were a small business that couldn't access the PPP loan quickly enough. Um, We provided a loan until they could get PPP loans. Or if they were a restaurant that needed to redo their kitchen or create outdoor seating... We provided loans for that sort of thing. The other thing we did was we set up a tenant portal so all our tenants could go there and find out best practices, whether that was best practices on how to fill out a PPP for a PPP loan or whether it was how to redo your seating, how to improve your app to get more food to to, to do better with Uber Eats and things like that. We were really committed early on. And, you know, for us, it's really about being part of the community. Um, One of the things that's always distinguished Jamestown, I think, is that we've always been about improving the quality of life, economic development, advancing the community Those sort of things. You know, we, you know, at our Pond City Market project in Atlanta, we were really with a job training program and job hiring program for people in the community. We really think one of the things that good retail does today is it becomes part of the community. One of my go to stories is we have a bookstore at a handful of our projects. Bookstores are often not the highest paying tenants. But if you're going to see your project as sort of a main and main, I think one of the things you need to do is have, that, have some type of a bookstore. And so, you know, it's all wrapped up in one, whether it's having a lot of local tenants versus purely nationals, whether it's having a bookstore, whether it's having a tenant portal to learn best practices or setting up this this loan program for our tenants, it's all about really being part of the community and really helping to foster that.
0: I, I love the tenant portal. It's uh, communication was a theme throughout the pandemic as far as uh, best practice, you know, how can you help, uh, get through the past year and that tenant landlord communication was so key and to have something, uh, like a portal to share all of those best practices and really, like you said, be a partner to them and help them. you know, their their expertise is in running their particular business, and they're faced with these kind of uh, unprecedented challenges and to be able to go in and help them and share those best practices, I'm sure made all the difference with them and and meant a lot to them as, uh, a business relationship or even a personal relationship that they, I'm sure at some level they, they feel with working with you so closely throughout this past year. And on a related note, uh, you know, that we've talked about the strong corporate citizen, but also Jamestown has a very strong commitment to ESG as well. Cause it, in April of this year, Jamestown announced that it's committing to net zero carbon at Levi's Plaza in San Francisco by 2025 and Levi's Plaza will be Jamestown's first carbon neutral asset across its global portfolio. So what does ESG investing mean to Jamestown? You know what what was the story behind finally having this commitment now with this particular property?
1: Well, I would say first, we were pretty early on the sustainability path. In 2006, roughly, we bought a small sustainability company um, and really um, onboarded them into all aspects of our business. We set about a pump program called Jamestown Green. That And every time we did an acquisition starting in about 2006, 2007, part of the investment thesis was... How included how are we going to make this building more sustainable, more green. It's been part of our business plan every year that our asset managers and developers focus on. So in other words, it's part of the acquisition plan, but then then we actually buy an asset and it becomes part of how the asset managers and developers are graded on their job, whether they're, um, you know whether they're making the right decisions from a sustainability perspective. So pretty early on, we've been engaged in this space. As to why, I would say a few things. Number one, and this was true, you know, 15 years ago when we started in doing this stuff, is it's simply the right thing to do. Um, but beyond it being the right thing to do, I will tell you that I think it's the right thing economically, financially to do as well. It's the right thing to do for prospective tenants because we think prospective tenants really embrace and support these initiatives. Um, this is especially true when you're a company like Jamestown that caters to a lot of creative and tech companies. They want to see they want to see that they are in a building that's sustainability focused. The other thing is it's important to your investors, to your current investors in your funds, things like that, that they're part of a company, that they're investing in a company that actually cares about these values. And then finally, I think it's important from the capital markets perspective. So in other words, Seven, 10 years from now, you go and sell a building. I think your buying pool of people who are interested in actually buying that, int- that building are going to be broader. You're going to engage more potential buyers when you have a sustainability story to tell. So you know for all those reasons I think um sustainability is the right thing to do for us it's also about you know we've talked about we've been talking about sustainability but another big initiative for us is around health having um healthy food options in our building it's about um quality of the air, And it's also about having tenants, whether it's, um, medical facilities or things like that. Um, we want our buildings to not just be sustainable from a, you know, from a green initiative, but also to be
0: truly healthy buildings for the people officing in them. So it sounds like you really have incorporated this whole concept into the, the bones of Jamestown, if you will. Very, it's not, uh, It it permeates, sounds like every piece of what you do. Do you find, even now, that uh, ESG is an important factor for investors? Absolutely. We, it gets bigger all the time.
1: When we started doing it 15 years ago, we had investors say, why are you prioritizing that? Why do you have a section in your investment committee memo on sustainability efforts? And now I think investors, we don't get the question why we more get, we appreciate the thoughtful analysis around the subject. But, you know, 15 years ago, you really would get, why are you doing this sort of thing?
0: Absolutely. It was more of a, a European desirable, right? They were kind of ahead of the curve on ESG and it seems like we're adopting it more and more. So I'm excited to see how that affects investing going forward and what the that trend, how it progresses and see it progressing. Speaking of trends, you know, what are some of the other trends that you're seeing emerging from the pandemic, uh, especially since Jamestown is uh Within these two sectors, within office and retail in particular. And what does the future of these asset classes look like, in your opinion? Well, that's a great
1: question, and everyone's focused on that right now. I would say a few things. Number one, we still believe in the office environment. I believe that collaboration, mentorship, spontaneous encounters in the lunchroom, these are important things. I think um, work from home worked but Particularly well at the beginning of the pandemic, when candidly everybody was super scared and worried about it—you know, worried about losing their job, worried, you know, about, about really everything. I think as we've gotten farther along. I think it's it's become more and more apparent to more and more companies that getting people back in the office is necessary. Again, collaboration, mentorship, growing the business, spontaneous encounters in the lunchroom. These things are really, really important. So we still believe in the office environment. The other thing I'll say is the more... You see people in the office, you know, once you hit, call it an inflection point or call it 50, 60% of the people in the office, the more people, unfortunately, are not who are not in the office are going to be unintentionally marginalized. I see that at Jamestown. I see that, you know, we have a meeting, two people are in the office, two people are, are, you know, two or three are in the office, one or two are not. The two, we have a Zoom call, we make a decision, then the two or three people in the office go downstairs, get lunch, or keep the discussion going in the hallway. And they end up changing their decision. And in engaging in a whole other dialogue sort of spontaneously about how, well, we actually didn't think through this issue enough, etc., etc. And so they change the decision, send around an email that says, hey, we've changed our opinion, we're now going to do X. And very quickly, unfortunately or not, it's unintentional The people who are not in the office end up to some degree marginalized and feel a need to come into the office the next day. So, you know, we still believe in the office environment. We think there's a growing need for office space. Um, I also think densities will increase, or densities will decrease. We basically went from a period about 20 years ago where we were giving about 250 square feet per person in an office, the tech companies got super, super dense and they took an old school like lunchroom table and declared that was an office for 10 people, all of whom were going to be on the phone all day and got their densities down, saying into the 80, 90 square feet per person range. And my point is sharing that is I don't think we're going back to 250, but the 80 to 90 Doesn't work when you're increasing where you're going to be worried about, you know, germs and things like that, more worried than before. But it also doesn't work because it was never really effective to have eight people at a lunchroom and calling that an office for eight. So I think you'll see a reverse densification um, coming out of the pandemic as people think about their future office needs. The end result of this is yes, there are some office spaces that are obsolete. But I think there remains a need for good office space. And this is true as retail as well. Here's here's the way I I would put it. Whether you're talking office or retail, you have to create a space that's dynamic enough and engaging enough to get somebody out of their pajamas. It's easy in the 21st century, in 2021, for someone to stay in their pajamas, do their shopping And to some degree, do a fair amount of their work, too. And so I think what Jamestown has done really well with our vertically integrated teams is going to be even more rewarded into the future. And that is creating engaging environments, whether you're talking Chelsea Market in New York, Industry City in New York, um, the innovation and design building in Boston, um, Georgetown in DC, Ponce City Market in Atlanta, Gear Deli Square in San Francisco. I think what Jamestown does well is creating engaging environments where people will want to linger longer. I look at it like a good office retail environment creates almost that second space for you. You have your home space that is your home, but you have that second or third space where you're also very comfortable, where you feel engaged, where you're around interesting people looking at interesting stores in an interesting, engaging office environment. So I think I, we still believe in the office environment. We think you've got to do it with health and safety in mind, which again, I think we're very good at. The other thing I think is really important are what I would call hor- some horizontal um, campuses, whether that's Levi's Plaza in San Francisco or Southern Dairies in Atlanta. Um, I think these are important, these sort of. Um, Horizontal campuses where you can get outside relatively easy um, are
0: also incredibly important. So as a follow up question for the retail side of that answer with those big, beautiful properties, as you mentioned, you know, um, with uh, Jared and, you know, those types of things that uh, allow, you know, that's something that perhaps the local Retail firm might not be able to take full advantage of. Do you have any type of tips or anything for what do you do if you're not a store in one of those uh, kind of community experiential properties like a Pont City Market?
1: Uh, I one of the phrases we like to use at Jamestown is how do you surprise and delight people. Again, to get somebody out of their pajamas to go shopping, I think surprise and delight is our key. You've got to do things where somebody will walk into the store and think to themselves, "Wow, that was a surprise! I didn't expect to find that here." Or, wow, that's really interesting architecture. That's really interesting. Or you know, you've got to get people. You've got to bring a smile to their faces. You've got to be able to surprise them. Again, I think our projects do that really well. If you're not Add a project that's super engaging. I think it's simply on you to try to do that on your own, which is hard. Um, and I will say I'm very proud that if you look at our foot traffic numbers at our properties, they're really on from a retail basis in particular on the weekends. They're at pre-pandemic levels now. So it's really exciting for us.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's one of those with retail in particular, you, you really can't compete on price, not with e-commerce over the past year. So you really do have to delight and surprise them, have some kind of experience for them, uh, service, what what have you. It's got to be something above you, you. If you're trying to compete on price alone, I just that doesn't seem like the recipe you need for success these days in retail. That's right. So. You happen to have properties across the country and certainly are very familiar with, uh, all of the changes and where the movement of people, especially over the past year with migration of, uh, where people are going and have moved, especially given that they can do remote work. Are there any, uh, MSAs of particular interest, uh, when you're looking at like future acquisitions that you guys are keeping an eye on, you know, and. If so, you know what? What is it about those areas? What are you looking for? I would say a few
1: things. Number one, for me, it all starts with strong demographics. I would, I never invest in markets without really good demographics where I think young people or young educated people are moving. Second thing I really like in a market is good job growth. And that goes hand in hand with the demographics. I'm looking for job growth in industries that are tech, that are creative, things like that. Atlanta has a lot of that. Um, so do a lot of the other Sunbelt cities. They have great demographics and really great job growth. Something else I look at that isn't always easy to find is I do have a preference for what I call supply constrained markets. Um, markets where it's not easy to just put up a new office building, new retail project. I like markets that are a little bit more predictable where, um, the zoning, zoning makes it easy makes it difficult there are some markets in the country where you can put up anything on any street corner and that makes it harder to create to really drive rent so for example new york is a great example of a, generally speaking a supply constrained market zoning is very difficult um the The neighborhoods are primarily built out. There aren't a lot of just parking lots or, you know, that are sitting fallow, waiting for development. So we like supply constrained markets as well. But for us, it really starts out with strong demographics and good job growth. Um, and then, you know Atlanta has those, which is why you know here at, at Jamestown we've been successful recruiting and attracting a number of innovation innovative companies from you know the Airbnb's and others to the market. Um, but for us again, we think if you can create that engaging env- environments, they can. Re- if you're in markets like Atlanta, Raleigh, Durham you know, et cetera, you can create that innovation hub and we love to be part and help facilitate innovation
0: hubs. And not only just facilitate innovation, uh, you actually kind of do your own innovation as well, which I'm excited to chat with you about. Uh, recently you, uh, launched a direct-to-consumer platform through Jamestown Invest, you know, in an effort to, you know, what was behind that decision to broaden your capital source to include retail investors? Um, you know, there's been plenty of talk about crowdfunding and commercial real estate in recent years. Why do you think your crowdfunding model is working so well? I it's, First of all, it's really exciting
1: to be pursuing it. Um, To best answer that, just to give you some history, Jamestown has two primary capital sources. We got our start raising capital in Germany from retail investors, what I call the dentist in Dusseldorf. We then secondly diversified and added what I would call more traditional institutional capital, including some large US, U.S. state pension funds, et cetera. What was missing is what I might call the third leg of the stool, which was retail investors in the U.S., sort of the dentist in Detroit or Decatur comparable to the dentist in Dusseldorf. And again, we had a long history with these retail investors in Europe. It was com- coming to the US was new to us. And what changed was some of the recent changes and regulations that really are fostering with the SOX Act and other things that have really fostered what I would call democratization of investing. Increasingly, Americans... Are interested in going direct and having a say in who they invest with and that sort of thing. We also had friends through the years asking us here in the US, How do I invest in a Jamestown product? And the answer until recently was, Sorry, you really can't. Um, we have an institutional caliber company that has raised a lot of institutional funds through the years. You know, we have. Roughly ballpark over twelve billion in assets under managed today, and when I looked at the crowdfunding space again, I saw that this is a growing space that Americans want to invest direct, and in some of the um, recent legal cha- changes in d c had made it easier to do so, but i didn 't see a lot of co- what I would call institutional caliber. Real estate companies operating in this space. And we are not a tech company dabbling in real estate. We are really, we're a real real estate company. But the idea of engaging with tech and doing a direct to consumer experience on the internet, we thought was really unique. And the opportunity to also create an alignment where Jamestown myself and others, are some of the biggest investors in this fund, paying this basically paying the same structure as our investors. Um, we just thought this was an interesting place to be. We see it as a long-term business for us. In other words, we got into this business not expecting to be hugely successful in year one, though we are successful, um, but with the idea that you plant seeds so that over the next seven, 10 years, it reaps rewards. And so we're really excited to be in this direct-to-consumer business right now.
0: Yeah, and it, and it actually has already yielded results for you, right, with uh, Southern Dairies at Pont City Market.
1: Yes, Southern Dairies was our first project we put into this direct-to-U.S. consumer project product. We've had great success at Southern Dairies um, adjacent to Ponce, and it's been able to have some synergies with Ponce, and it's been really exciting. It's a really fun project. As I said, I'm an investor in it, so are a lot of my friends and family, and think it's really an exciting place
0: to be playing right now. Like I said, it's one of those things that everybody's talked about, but it's the first story I've heard of somebody doing it successfully at this level. When you're looking at your next um, Jamestown Invest property, what what is is there any particular unique uh, factors that you're looking at to say this is this will be a direct to consumer platform property versus this is just going to be uh, our regular Jamestown property? I think what we look for is
1: pretty uniform in that we're always looking for non-commodity assets. Assets, again, that justify people getting out of their pajamas. Whether it's retail office or even an apartment, we want to do things that are a little bit unique where we think we can cr- really create value over time. Um, at this point, some of the these the, direct to consumer products will be on the smaller
0: side compared to our other projects, simply a function of capital raising. I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I think it was it's fascinating to kind of peel back the curtain and hear the stories behind some of these iconic properties and the history of Jamestown. And hopefully there I certainly was aware of plenty of nuggets in there for our listeners to pick up and hopefully take back to their own firm. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Matt. Larry,
1: it was really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for your time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.